HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was brought to you by MolecularRecipes.com, the world's number one source for modernist recipes, techniques, ingredients, and tools. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In The Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, should I... uh, Happy birthday uh, to you. Happy happy birthday birthday to you. you. Happy Happy birthday, birthday, dear Dave. Dave. Happy birthday to you. Oh, very nice. Yay. Very, very nice, very nice. All right, now, before <laughs> we start, thank you. Uh, at what age do I get to say years young instead of years old? Uh, I don't know. When you're like 60? Yeah, probably Yeah, 60. yeah, yeah. 44 years young. All right, so here's the, here's the, here's the question. Should I, should I do this NPR style or should I start this like regular cooking issue style? I think regular cooking issue style, we can take it from the top. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, every Tuesday on the Heritage Radio Network from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45, joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. Got Jack in the engineering booth. Call in your questions to 718 uh, what is it? 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. You like that one better than the NPR style? I prefer the NPR style. Hello. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, I do. I've heard feedback from listeners that like yeah. it's in the lot. All right. Because well, I usually listen in the morning, and so the look, yelling is like... But wait, maybe it's like you could use it as like your... Eh, 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 yeah. eh, eh. For me, it gets me ready for what's yeah. to come, you know? Hello. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, broadcasting live out of the studios in Roberta's Pizzeria, Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to 12.45. Call in your live questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. I like that one. You like that one better? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We can put it to a vote. Yeah. Write, write us in, guys. <laughs> Let yeah. us know which one you want. Tweet, tweet at Heritage. What are you? At Heritage Her- underscore radio. Yeah. That underscore is kind of a killer, huh? Gotta love the underscore. Is the other one owned by the, by the like... Uh, the foundation? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. That is unrelated to you guys. Yeah. I don't know who the regular Heritage Radio on Twitter is. What? Pop it. Oh. It's a dead account, the other Heritage Radio. 
Well, the, the other Heritage Radio, the false Heritage Radio. The, the other, at Heritage Radio Regular, has one tweet, and it says, it's from 2009, it says, I am planning next week's syndicated old-time radio show. No other tweets. That's, yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm a, we have no bottle opener here, and Jack oh, I have has one. a, oh, well, I'm just going to use your table here. Old school, because I don't have, like, even, like, a knife with me, so I don't feel like a... As oh Nastasha would say, you're only half a man because you don't have your knife with you. But, uh, you know, I'm of the... Uh, Wait, so what did you do for your birthday yesterday? I worked. I fell asleep. I worked. Uh, I ate leftovers and I fell asleep. You like that? No, it's sad. I was going to go out to the bar and hang, but I, you know... It looked like people were there for you. No, they weren't. They, they were there for... They were eating dinner at Sun. Anyway... Uh, so the point, uh, yes, whatever, like, you know, birthdays, when you, once you, you know, once you're, you know, my age, you know, birthday is fun. It's nice. You know, I cooked a big meal on, uh, on Sunday cause the birthday's on a Monday. Monday birthday is like, what are you going to do on a Monday birthday? Everyone's got to work. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anyways. But you so. got a tandoor. Oh yeah. So big news for, well, so next week is Easter. And so, uh, of course, what do you, when you're going to cook Easter dinner, what do you do? You buy a tandoor. So I drove to uh, – plus also, I've mentioned before, I'm going to do a big outdoor kitchen, but I've be- really been uh, kind of researching kind of what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a, an old-school bread oven. I considered maybe buying a bread oven and then just putting it in, but I think I'm just going to actually build it from scratch. But the problem is is that when you're pouring the concrete and doing all this, you have like days and days where it's going to take a long time. It's going to take probably the better part of this season for me to actually be able to build the bread oven if I'm only working you know, on you know, every other weekend or something to do it. So it's going to take a while. So like, what can I do right now? I can just get a Tandoor. And you can buy for not that much – I mean it's expensive, but not that much money, just a completely built-in Tandoor. They build the Tandoor liner uh, you know, with the, whatever hairy crap they put into the clay, the clay they, in Delhi. They put it inside of a stainless steel trash can, fundamentally, and then they uh, put refractory cement around it. They give you some skewers, a little bread cushion. You know how non works, right? Yep. With a bread cushion. So you, they give you a little bread cushion, and you're ready to go. So, you know, I'm going to be doing – I'm going to do – oh, i got to call Patrick Martins. I know. You, yeah. Listen, peoples, if you need lamb for Easter, which I'm sure you do, there is still time to go to Heritage Meats and, and purchase – some of their uh, lambs. Are you uh, familiar with the lamb and heritage meat, uh, Jack? I know you. Very good. Yeah. Anyways, it's the Tunis lamb, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yeah. From from Tunisia, I would guess. Those uh, guys, probably. Those guys know from lamb. Anyway, so the uh, point being, I'm going to try and uh, I'm going to try and like sneak some lamb from Patrick, and I'm going to do uh, I'm going to do Mediterranean flavors tandoor cooking. What do you think? That's good. You I like, like it. Do yeah. you like you like kebabs of lamb? Mm-mm. Really? Mm-hmm. You you've had them and don't like them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? What the hell? Although I had uh, from a food truck last night. Is that is that is that your new? Uh, that What's sounds, that called? From a food truck sounds like a like a novel, like your first novel from a food truck. What's that called? What's what Where called? You shave it off. Which version of it? Uh, Shawarma. Yeah. Uh, no, no. It's called something. Zero. Else. Yeah. Oh. It was really good. Donor. No. Uh, yeah, which for, <laughs> I don't know. So, but that's like pulped lamb and other stuff. Yeah, I just stick, don't like like the crusty lamb with all the spices on the outside. Oh my god! You know, you know, Stas, mm. you never cease in finding new ways to culinarily disappoint me. <laughs> you don't like the crusty deliciousness on the outside of a lamb kebab? No, I don't. I don't like some of those flavors. What is it? Cumin? You don't like cumin? You don't Maybe like cumin? cumin? Yeah. Do you don't like chili? 
See, that remember when you yelled at me for not putting cumin in the chili and you were like it's not chili? It's tomato stew. Right. That yeah. Until you had the cumin. Yeah. At which point well, or you know, beef stew. It's beef stew. Okay. And a rather crappy beef stew at that until you add cumin. freaking cumin. That is uh that is not cool, Stas. I know. Um, okay, so back to the. Although I, now I can't cheers. get that out of my head. Oh, cheers. Um, what cheers, ab- Jack. What about the? Well, his glasses. What about the? Um, what about the? Like the Russian version of uh, of lamb kebabs. I haven't had that. Karski Shaslik, the uh, Russian. Mm-mm. You would like that because Probably, it's, it's not spiced. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I'm going to make. Okay, <laughs> but it's not going to be there. Well. <laughs> Someday you will come someday, up. Yeah. Someday you will come up, and we'll get the limp. Anyway, this, we're we're going off topic. Has that ever happened before? That we've gone off topic? Never. It's never happened. Anyway, I'm very excited about the tandoor. I have to. Um, there's you know, one of the big things when you get a tandoor. It's, it's clay, right? Mm-hmm. So you, like people first, you have to pre-fire it. So I got to do the pre-firing with charcoal, and that stops it from cracking because it. Remember when we made the fake tandoor for Anthony yes, Bourdain? Yes, I do. And we cracked it because we fired it real yeah. hard, real fast. We tried to do a pre-fire, but Can we didn't. Met, we did that stuff back then, and that was less hardcore than... Than what? I mean, legally hardcore. What do you mean? The legality of what we did was not well, No one cares. Nobody yeah, cared. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, so, you know, and we made that tandoor in what, like, like a day? Less, yeah, less than a day. Than a day less yeah. than a day. We did the old school, like, two flower pot tandoor, and we drilled a hole in the bottom for the charcoal thing, put it in a trash can, surrounded with insulations, and the food was delicious. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but now, a little more hardcore, so I got to do a pre-firing of it, and then the, the big bone of contention with the tandoor is that, is that you have to season the inside of it, like, with a mixture so of, So he like, hasn't used it? Who? The guy. He sells them new. Oh, okay. I went to his warehouse in New Jersey. You can go to this warehouse in New Jersey, and the guy will just hand you a Tandoor. Well, it's like 350 pounds, but he'll hand it to you. He has actually a giant warehouse dude who looks like a giant warehouse dude, complete with the sweet warehouse dude beard. And he, like, picks up the the thing and puts it in the back of your station wagon. Anyways, uh, yeah, it's right out there in Jersey, like 20 minutes from New York. You can just go buy it, pick it up. Nice. Yeah. So uh, I hate to have to say this, but I have a caller on the line who's upset with the way you treated her vajetti. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Hi, Dave. Hello. Hi, Oh my goodness! <laughs> I was so embarrassed. That's the greatest. That's the greatest <laughs> thing that's ever happened no. to me. So, Dave, I was listening a couple weeks ago. And I heard you were talking badly about the Vegetti. Uh, just the name. The name. The name. But you don't trust the noodle, the, the product. Uh, no, you don't trust the product. You said that noodle, the... Stop. You said that you didn't trust the product? We were talking about vegetable noodles <laughs> and how they well, were Well, they're not inferior. a noodle. It's yeah. not a noodle. Yeah. It's not... Yeah. I think it could be an interesting... I think it could be an interesting... Look, I mean, I think like shredded... Like like daikon sh- shreds and strips are delicious, right? Yeah. Many shredded things. It's not things shredded. Are or like strips, noodle. Spiralized. Noodle. Spiralized. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! You know what? All right, all right. Uh, and so you have a you have a you have a, a vested stake in the in the Vegetti device, or more just a love for it. I have a what? Are you like part of the Vegetti Corporation, or do you just have a, just just? Have no, a, I just I got one. Because I'm, you know, trying to cut back on the carbs, and it changed my life. I mean, you can you can use it for everything, like um, Vegetti Carbonara, Vegetti 
and meatballs. I mean, it's like... Wait, wait did you say vegetti and meatballs? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. You can do vegetti fritters. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like he wants to kill himself. You ever done, like, sausage and vegetti? Sausage in the gravy with the vegetti? I'm not going to... Like, here's a... Here, here's a Okay, and what's your favorite things to vi- to to vegetize <laughs> or spiralize? What? As you would say, what are your favorite things to uh, to spiralize in the vegetti? Oh uh, well, I pretty much exclusively spiralize zucchini uh, of the green and yellow variety. But doesn't that just turn? I've mush? never really done anything else. I don't. I think that you know it has to be um, a little bit soft. I think that like a potato or a carrot would be a little too much for the spiralizer you know now, how, how big is the opening to the <laughs> <laughs> to the vegetti? how big is the opening to it like what what size of a veg can you stick into that thing i mean like a zucchini size you could do a cucumber you could do like a cold cucumber salad <laughs> so you could put a cucumber in the vegetti. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. All right. Hold on. Wait, here's my question, gonna, though. Dave, the, that, I'm going to send you one for your birthday. Uh, all right. We'll, we'll play around with it. We'll play around. And, okay. and why don't you experiment with it? And then, you know, I'll, I'll call back in and we can go from there. That's a fair deal. That's a fair deal. <laughs> That's a good deal. All right. We'll do. Thanks. I, have, I haven't busted out a lot of, like, uh, we haven't done a lot of side-by-sides or, like, you know, culinary tests in the past year or so because I've been, you know, focused more on bar and the cookbook and everything and the Sears all. But we will definitely reopen our testing, uh, our te- the testing phase of our career with the Vegetti. I look forward to it. Thanks, Claire. Well, thank you. All and right. I'll say that the Sears all and Vegetti are a great match. <laughs> we'll, we'll test it for you. Uh, okay. When you send it, send, send your favorite bye, things guys. that you like to do. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, the, well, I guess you now, you know, if you listen to the previous conversation, you, you know what the Vegetti does for a living. Um, oh man. So we were talking about the four Tandors. Yes. So whenever you're, when you, when you, when you fire a Tandor for the first time, you, um, you, you, you know, protect the, uh, the clay from later thermal shock, right? But then you have to put a seasoning on the inside. So I'm trying to figure out whose recipe for seasoning you need because uh, people mix, like, like sugar and mustard oil and, like, eggs and spinach, and they rub it all on the inside. The theory being that I guess it affects, like, the patina and whether or not the nons will stick to it mm. properly and then release properly when they're, when they're cooked. But... Expect me to go on kind of a tandoor frenzy for the next. So I'm gonna do. I'm gonna probably do Mediterranean style lamb with spices that you might appreciate mm-hmm. styles mm-hmm. Uh, for Easter, along with just naan after naan after naan after naan. You like naan, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody yeah, likes naan. Yeah. Anyone in the engineering booth not like naan? <laughs> do I have to get in an argument over here? Come on. All right. Garlic naan is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. You like the garlic naan? Yeah. I like plain. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I like plain. What about you, Stas? I like plain. I like plain. Yeah, in, gen- in general, you like yeah, <laughs> plain. Okay. Oh, I have to recover <laughs> from that. <laughs> All right. So um, last week we had uh, we had a question we didn't get to from uh, Brian Van Clavern, Cla- Claverin, uh about ham. Uh, hey, Dave Hammer and the Booth Squad. Oh, I like that Booth Squad. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Jackie Molecules and the Booth Squad. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, it's like it's almost like you become like the Terror Squad. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, Terror Squad. All right. I received my first country ham last week, a half of a Colonel Bill Newsom's country ham. Colonel Bill Newsom's out of, by the way, I believe it's mm, Princeton, Kentucky, I think is where they're from. But they're, uh, Nancy Mahaffey uh, is the is the ham curing uh, master there, and she's been doing it for a long time. I think she took over the business. It's got to be like maybe 15, 20 years ago now at least, I think. I don't know. It's been a long time. I haven't spoken to her in years. But um, – her hams are, are done according to the uh, recipe that they've had in the family since their family was in Virginia, you know, hundreds of years ago, and uh, they do ambient curing. So ambient curing meaning they they really only cure one time of year when it starts getting cold out, and then they don't do a refrigerated cure process. They would they do it in the way that you would have done it before you had refrigeration. So she has you know every year she produces a different batch, some of which she saves for long enough to do two and three year old age hams. Although they all get bought up right now because she has you know a uh, pretty wide cult following following the thing i like about uh her ham she also doesn't for what it's worth uh she does, i believe she's a non uh non-nitrite adding uh non-nitrate adding uh person but I, I can't remember but anyways i think the interesting thing about her hams in particular is that uh they they i've never been to her cure, curing area but apparently it's near a pretty swampy region and uh, maybe that's why but they like at their best her hams have a particular kind of funky almost at at the back of your mouth blue cheese kind of a note that i think are indicative of her best hams and so whenever i taste one of her hams i like taste to see whether it has that particular note to it in which case then you know i'm like oh that's the real deal uh and the only other hams i've had that have that blue cheese note are uh is a ham that my wife smuggled back to me from china which when we go visit uh, production, we can yeah. we're going to go on a hamathon in China. Can't yeah. wait, cannot wait. Anyway, uh, that was not. So I've got a few questions on storing it and slicing it. For storing, I just put it in a brown paper sack and fold up the end tightly inside my kitchen cabinet. Then I set the ham in a bag on a metal grate trivet. Online, it's mentioned to use cloth or wrap uh, or to wrap it in paper, so I figured this is close, but I'm still on the lookout for a cotton bag or something. My house has a California cooler, which is a vented food storage box, which I could use for food storage as well. The conditions inside there uh, for the next several months will probably be around 52 to 64 degrees and around 75% average humidity, maybe a bit higher, whereas the cabinet would be a tad warmer and drier. Of course, I could always just use the fridge, uh, but the other spaces are more plentiful. Of the options between us, a kitchen cabinet, a California cooler, and a fridge, what would be ideal? And because I got half a ham, there's quite a bit of meat that's already exposed. Is it necessary to cover sliced areas with some sort of fat? I'd prefer not to use lard or shortening with hydrogenated oils if possible. Why, though? I wonder why. Don't know. Why? Don't know. All right. Uh, so I was wondering if peanut oil or something might be a decent substitute. If not, I do have some leaf lard I can render down if I need to. I'm wondering what the best way to slice is. I've looked at instructions for slicing both country hams and Spanish hams. Most of what I've seen for country hams look like they instruct you to cut perpendicular like a spiral cut uh, or, or at least closer to being perpendicular to the bone, which seems to be better for frying or whatnot. I like whatnot. It's a good one, right? Whatnot. Uh, for the Spanish hams, the cuts seem to be closer to being parallel to the bone. If I'm primarily eating it uncooked with very thin slices, what is the best way to cut it? Thanks. Brian from San Francisco, California. Okay. Now, let's go in – you want to go in reverse order? Let's go in reverse order. <clears throat> all right. First of all, how to cut a ham. Now, the age-old uh, – this is like – this is the heart of the – and I've spent a lot of uh, time figuring out whether you should cut a ham 
uh, across the grain the way that we traditionally eat all hams in, in this country. And by that, I'm, I mean even when they're eaten crudo style. So I'm talking prosciutto. And even the average American slicing a, a Spanish ham is going to slice it um, across the grain. Now, my feeling, borne out by research that I've done now, like did over 10 years ago. So I have, there's probably, I'm sure there's been a lot of uh, recent, much more recent scholarship on, on this. Not that what I was doing was scholarship, but it was for the ham, ham exhibit I did back in 04. Was that traditionally meats are, uh, the hams like this were sliced, if they were going to be eaten in a crudo style, were sliced uh, the w- way a Spanish ham was, and that, in that, to this day, you know, the uh, Italian folks who you know are m- more artisanal at it, doing it will slice it uh, the the long way. That is uh, horizontally. That is with uh, you know with lo- the grain running along it in a long strip. This does several things. It uh, produces a much chewier piece of meat. Uh, and it allows you to uh, section the entire length of uh, – or not the entire length, but a larger length of the ham in, in, one, in one slice. So it gives you a chewier thing and more textural variation. And also, uh, let's be honest, most ham, uh, hand ham slicing isn't so good. So it, it gets like thick and thin and thick and thin and thick and thin. Remember that time we were doing it and you, everyone was laughing at each other? Everyone mm-hmm. was telling how everyone else was a crap hole. And then as soon as you said someone else was doing a good job, then they would break yeah, through and mess yeah, it up. that was at the farm. Yeah, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so uh, the the point is is that uh, the people who like that style like that style. Now, the cross cut that we have now uh, really, I believe, didn't it, it never came into vogue in terms of crudo ham serving until the invention of the uh, meat slicer by a fellow named uh, Van Berkel, who of the Berkel meat slicer. So those those and those the original ones were completely vertical. The ones that, that, that you see in the fancier shops with the vertical blade, and actually the original ones were amazingly frightening looking because it was literally a large spinning blade with no guards at all. They're just, they're fantastically frightening. You ever seen the pictures of those styles? Mm. There's a picture of what looks like a uh, you know a 2015 Brooklynite, i.e. he's got like a huge hipster kind of mustache on him and standing in front of this machine with, oh my god imagine if we got one of those old ones and like set it up and then like cool. forced hipsters to use it their hands would get cut off like left and right no blade guards on this thing <laughs> they don't use their hands to hold on to the bike fixies anyway right yeah right yeah yeah the only time I've been heavily damaged in the kitchen was with a meat slicer well I mean other than being horribly burnt but I mean in ter- with a and knife a lie and the lie, yeah. But I, what I meant to say is, the only time I've been really, really badly cut in a kitchen was on the was on a meat slicer, and that was like a semi modern one with a bunch of guards on it. Even, like I'm holding my thumb, even just thinking about feeding my thumb into the edge of that blade, which is ugh. anyway. Um, I've thankfully never, you know, severed huge, you know, anyway, whatever. Um, yet, yet. <laughs> wow, uh, yeah, you don't want to know what Stas just said. Anyways, <clears throat> the point is. Uh, that the advent of that slicing technology has kind of like led not only to the luncheon meat phenomenon that you have. Remember Blimpy back in the day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, fresh sliced Blimpy. Do those things still exist? They still have Blimpies? I think so. Anyways, um, but led to this idea of cross-cut hams and the ability to slice them uh, very, very thin. Uh, and all Americans grew up who grew up eating Americans that grew up eating uh, prosciutto uh, and other crudo style hams grew up eating it this way. And I have to say, I like it. I like a cross cut ham. Cross cut ham is five thousand times like 
I don't know, it's more supple. It hangs like a fabric in your hands. You can put it up to your nose, sniff it in a way that you can't, I think, the long kind of stiffer strips. Um, and I, I like it. And, it's, and it sections a different thing. Instead of sectioning along the length, it, sec- it sections whatever particular muscle group you're on right now all the way through. So I like it. Uh, but that said, it's a matter of taste. I don't believe, as other people believe, that there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I think it's what you want. If you want that more tender, thinner slice... Go crosscut. If you want to sample all the different uh, pieces and you like that textural variation, go uh, go horizontal. But I will say it's incredibly difficult to try to make good crosscut slices by hand. So if you don't have a meat slicer, I would I would slice it more traditionally. Get a, like a long, thin, uh, or straight slicer and and learn to stri- a slice uh, serrano style. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, as for uh, what was the middle part of the question? The middle part of the question was um, quite a bit of meat already exposed. So the fact of the matter is is that any meat that you leave exposed will uh, – you, you want to keep it in you know not too dry an environment or it's going to over dry. It's going to dry out. But any piece of meat that you leave exposed will end up, depending on how long you store it, drying out to the same extent that a um, – that the fi- – so if you look at a ham, like a standard like American country ham, there is a portion of the meat that's exposed uh, you know, where you severed the leg from the pig, right? The face of the, of the ham there where you severed the leg. There's that exposed meat. And eventually any cut surface will approach the same level of desiccation as that face section of meat, which maybe you like, maybe you don't. I would believe that any oil covering would uh, help somewhat ameliorate um, that problem. You could probably even literally store it in oil, you know what I mean, with a complete cover of oil, like in a gallon zippy with like oil around it to prevent. I don't know. I've never tried it, but I'm sure that would work. But that said, the old school folks, and in fact, in um, mountain, in Spanish mountain hams, and in Italian, Italian, actually, yeah. in Italian hams, right? They'll—I uh, forget. Do you remember what they mix in with the with the lard? They mix some sort of flour with the lard, but I forget what it is, and paste it over the face. That's why the face of a prosciutto is that kind of like whitish uh, color uh, when they're when they're curing it, um, and that prevents. Um, rapid moisture loss through the face and so what that means is is that is that the the meat will be relatively similar levels of dryness throughout the uh, muscle whereas if you look at a cross cut of an american ham you'll notice that the meat that's closer to the face is substantially darker substantially drier has a different texture and different taste therefore than the main cushion of the meat which is up and usually very very much softer so anyway and in the old days yeah you would rub lard and probably with some other mixture some crap with it so that it doesn't drip out on you. I don't know. Uh, and that's what uh, – I remember I think it was Morris uh, Burger from Burger's uh, Smokehouse uh, in uh, – Holly- I, I believe they're in Hollywood uh, in the Ozarks. But the town is called – I think it's the town's called Hollywood, which would be pretty awesome. Anyway, he used to say that what they would do is they would go out. They would hang their hams on a wire because the, the rats in the barn couldn't hold on to the wire. Right, so they couldn't climb down a wire to get to the hams, and then they would slather uh, lard. They would cut the piece off, they, then they would slather it with lard and hang it, hang it back up on the wire, and that's the way they would keep their hams out in the barn when he was a kid. And then they would go scrape off, slice another uh, frying slice out, and then put the, the, the lard back on and go, and that's how they would keep it. So that, that should work fine. Now as to where you should keep your hams, I used to hang my hams. There's two – there's three – there are several enemies to hams. So the first en- enemy is over-desiccation. Uh, I would guess probably in San Francisco that's not going to be too much of a, of a problem. Um, the other two enemies are um, bugs. 
specifically like things that bore into the the meat. These like little beetles. Uh, I I hate them. I hate them. And you can see like you'll get like little bore holes in your hand where those freaking beetles get in. Now this is where screening is going to help you, right? And any sort of uh, thing like that is going to help because once they hit, they'll hit all the hams that you have that have exposed uh, meat, right? So the bag should probably prevent this, like the cloth bag will probably prevent this. Uh, some papers and sacks probably prevent this. Uh, so you, you won't have that problem. The other problem is freaking mites. Now mites – they form like a dusty powder, and you'll notice a dusty powder accumulating under your hams because these mites get there. And I don't think any screen – I'm not sure, but I don't think any screen is going to prevent you from – and once you have the mites on the ham – and for me it was I brought a mighty ham in. Mighty ham. I brought a mighty ham in, and then all the rest of my hams got contaminated with the mites. And I spoke to um, I spoke to uh, uh, Sam Edwards from S. Wallace Edwards & Son, uh, a supporter of our network, by the way. Uh, and he was like, yeah, like unless you have treatments for it, like in your home, you don't typically treat for mites. Unless you treat for it, like once you get a mite in, once you get mites in there, you're, 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 you're done. You're going to have the mites. And, and nobody, the mites, they make that powdery stuff. I mean, I don't know if they hurt the hand, but it's kind of an irritant. So, uh, Storing it in the fridge. The problem with storing it in the fridge wrapped in paper is that uh, you'll get some moisture coming up to the surface there. I've gotten mold on the paper, which is not a big problem, but you have to kind of wash it off. So I would just kind of hang it out maybe in your California cooler. I think it should be good. Temperature fluctuation, not bad. It'll just keep aging. You just got to worry about over-desiccation, uh, which you could probably fix using uh, some form of lard spread over the face of the meat or some stuff like this. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Take a break. yeah. Let's take a break. Come back with more cooking issues. What? We're not? No. We're not going to a commercial break? All right. Jackie Molecule's not ready with his... um, What's up, guys? It's me, Jack, as in Jack from Cooking Issues, as in the guy that's probably been talking on this show. So here on the break to tell you about MolecularRecipes.com, which is not only an awesome website and store and resource, but also they support us, which makes them even that much cooler. So I know Dave gives you plenty and plenty of information on the show, but should you need further resource, should you want to get some of the things he's talking about, MolecularRecipes.com has... Recipes, techniques, ingredients, tools, all in the world of this modernist thing we love so much on the show. So, you know, explore the world of foams and spheres and invisible foods and mind-blowing cocktails, all that awesome stuff. There's a community of over 400,000 chefs, scientists, and food lovers sharing their favorite recipes, tips, and tricks. Cool photos, tools, gadgets. Again, this is everything you'd be into all in one place, MolecularRecipes.com. And just for being a listener of this show, you'll get 10% off any of their popular kits just by using the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. That's promo code HERITAGE. So again, check them out, MolecularRecipes.com. Tons of really awesome stuff there. Definitely right up your alley. And we're back. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
Did you say invisible foods, Jackie Molecules? Can't see them. Can't see them? How do you know how to shove a No, you know, like, a, the, the, if you go to the website, you'll see. There's, yeah. like, invisible raviolis and stuff. Oh, you see, see-through. You, you can, I guess it would be see-through. Yeah, I mean, in, like, I'll tell you what. If I could sell invisible food, I'd be a rich... Look at all the invisible food in front of you right now, Jack. See-through. Pay me. Yeah, true. <laughs> right? Transparent and see-through. I like that. I like transparent and see-through. I, as you all know, anyone that's met me knows that I enjoy... Uh, I enjoy... Some clarified products, yeah, some distilled products. Listen, go to the go to their website, check it out, and you know, hopefully, you're going to find something that you desperately need and order it to show that that you know their sponsorship is is worthwhile. Am I right, Jack? Yeah, I'm eating invisible scallops right now. By the way, <laughs> oh my god, how do they taste? Are they really good. They're seared perfectly. Really? Yep. Yeah, even the searing is invisible. Yep. Dang, dang. You know, remember the first um, time someone I remember because. Uh, uh, the Rokas, right? So the you know Jordy, the brother Roca, who's the pastry chef, or I guess still is at uh, El Clark and Roca. Um, he was using their Rotovap because they were kind of pioneers of Rotovap, and he was making all of these perfectly colorless, clear desserts, like with the flavor of X, Y, and Z, like years ago. It's kind of a mind blowing, uh, mind blowing experiment back in the day. Uh, way back in the day. Anyway, okay, <clears throat> questions. Uh, Eddie Noel writes in about pepper. Hey, Dave and the crew, I'm in love with the oils produced via the Chef Step technique. So you look up on Chef Step's uh, thyme oil. Uh, so basically they do uh, – they, ba- they vacuum bag and then um, cook their, uh, their thyme with the oil and other spices at 55C for Celsius for three hours. Uh, okay, so far we go through a ton of thyme and rosemary oil at my house. Now thinking about adapting that method for black pepper oil. Obviously, we'll need longer extract time and heat. Question and heat. Uh, but where would you start on a process for that? Thanks, uh, Eddie. Okay, well, that's a good question. Uh, I've never, I've never, since I haven't done it. Right, I'm like I'm not going to give any numbers here. What I'm going to say is I would. I would set up uh, test batches, small test batches. So the first thing you're going to uh, want to do is I would test a range of uh, – so the short answer is no, I don't have any recommendations. Here's the long answer. I would set up a bunch of test batches with a different uh, kind of grinds of the pepper, different peppers, first of all. I mean obviously you know black pepper is not a, a kind of unitary thing. You can get like Malabar. You can get Telecherry. You can get a you know, bunch of different uh, kinds. And so even like a trip – if you live here in New York – you can just go to Calustians uh, or even a dual specialty or any of these places, and you can buy five or six different kinds of pepper. And we used to do that. Remember we used to have those pepper tastings mm-hmm. in China? Did you like that tasting? Yeah, that was fun. We did it basically on butter with bread, right, because mm-hmm. the butter helped like, spread it out. And so, so we would just do butter, bread, and pepper. We'd smell it by itself. And, in fact, there are stark and huge differences between the different kinds of uh, peppers, right? right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even you agreed. Yes. Yeah. The lady who thinks that all ketchup stays the same. Um, the so back to, back to this. So what I would do is I would first uh, try to figure out which kind of pepper you want to use, and then I would try uh, whole, uh, cracked, uh, and fine. And then I would because I've, I've done pepper with uh, with liquor, right? In fact, I think I have one black black pepper tincture in in the book, and for that I tested a variety of grinds, but I've never done it in and a variety of peppers, but I've never done it. In uh, oils, that's why. You have to, and then I would test a variety of temperatures, uh, and then I would see t- 
test those temperatures to see which temperature regime you like best in terms of balance. And then after you do uh, – and I would test like maybe three different temperatures, like low, medium, and high. And then, uh, and then in between those temperatures, I would test probably another two. And then I would test duration of time. So you're going to have to run a bunch of tests. But in the end, you'll be able to get um, something that you really like, and then you can tweet us back and t- tell, us, tell us what you like. But I'll say another thing is that uh, I'm reminded years ago Steingarten called me on the phone. And he's uh, Jeffrey Steingarten, you know, like one of my, uh, you know, culinary writing idols. Um, saw him recently, yeah, or talked to him recently. Anyways, um, remember when he was on the show? Yep, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like him because he's mean to me. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I wonder whether he'd come back on the show. Jack, I, yeah, that's Jack right. should we get some Steingarten back on the show? Yeah, sometime? man, love Steingarten. Yeah. All right. So uh, anyway, so he said to me, he says, "You are an idiot." Uh, like everyone else, you add pepper at the beginning of cooking, whereas it's known via studies that uh, that you know basically the the awesome aroma of pepper volatilizes you know within minutes after adding it, and all you're left with is the bitter taste. To which I replied, "But Jeffrey, I like that bitter taste." You know what I mean? And so we got got an argument. But w- what it leads to is this idea that you can have uh, just like hops, where you can add kind of a bittering hop and then an aroma hop. Right, you can add pepper at the beginning of a cook for for its bitterness, and then at the end for aroma. So with your oil, and I do that actually with um, when I'm doing uh, hop infusions, um, hop infusions into alcohol, I'll do some heated and some cold. Right, you might also experiment with pepper with oil. By the way, using an EC to try and get a, a higher pressure to pressurize stuff into the pepper. But the point being is that you're going to get different results because pepper oil is extremely volatile. Here's another little wrinkle. I read a paper or tried to read a paper. I didn't really have time. Called Thermal Properties of Black Pepper and Its Volatile Oil by type is too small here. Um, Merladar Megwal. Uh, and TK uh, Goswami, 2011, and I was hoping for some like like hard and fast numbers, which they didn't give it. But it, it, suffice it to say, the one number that did stick out in my head was that um, the volatile oils are solid uh, below about 38 degrees Celsius. And, and they in the introduction they mentioned that the grinding, even kind of normal grinding, can heat pepper up substantially and change the composition of its volatile oils by volatilizing some of them. So, uh, And they said cryo-grinding is one way you might get around it. So another interesting thing you might do to try to get uh, an infusion of flavors that you would get in a whole peppercorn, but doing it uh, more completely in a ground fashion would be to cryo-grind your pepper, keeping it below about 40 degrees, minus 40 degrees Celsius. Minus 40 degrees, your average fridge does about minus 20, so we're talking about like uh, storing it in dry ice for a while and grinding it or using LN. To, to grind it, but that might give you a different result, which would be a whole interesting kind of thing. So some things you might want to think about is this kind of um, you know, pre-pepper, post-pepper, similar to kind of dry hopping to try to get the, uh, the, the bitterness out of one and the aroma out of another. Another thing you might want to look at is maybe uh, doing like a super chilled, uh, like a cryo grind to see whether that gives you something different versus the normal just playing with temperatures and times. But hopefully this is some food for thought. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah? Stas is like, yeah, okay, move on. Um, all right. Now, we have a question in from Brooke in uh, Tribeca, and Brooke writes it the official style with the capital T, the capital B, and the capital capital C. Do you, you ever do that? No, no. No? No. No? I guess if I lived there, maybe I would. You're, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah? What are your feelings on Tribeca? I don't really like it. Do you? Uh, I mean, back in the day, Tribeca was like, you know, it was the sh- it was the shizzy. You know what I mean? Like, that's like the artists, they couldn't afford to live in the Soho, so they moved down to Tribeca. Mm-hmm. Now it's like super fancy. My mm-hmm. wife used to live in, that's where, isn't that where? Jay-Z and Beyonce. 
And that's the only reason you like that event, right? Is you can look out on Beyonce's apartment and hopefully she came out once, yeah. right? Yeah. And you were like, oh, Beyonce. <laughs> right? Yes. Who my brother calls Beyonce or used to. Anyways, uh, love the show. New listener. Quick question about making fresh cheeses, specifically ricotta. What are your thoughts on ricotta stuff? I like it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Oh, all right, fine. No, no problems here. Uh, is there any advantage to using a circulator to make something like ricotta versus a quick stovetop method? I recently used a ricotta recipe that called for cooking the entire milk-cream acid mixture in a bag for one hour at 172 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty damn specific. What's that in Celsius? Can you look it up for me, Stas? That sounds like the kind of thing that someone came up with a Celsius recipe and then just hit convert. What is it? 172. It's. I bet you it's pretty close to an even five degrees somewhere in Celsius. Let's see what it is. Wave for people. Stas, Stas's fingers are fast like lightning, but, you know, the Google in here is not necessarily so fast. Um, while she's finding that, I'll continue the question. But traditional stovetop methods seem to call for just a quick simmer before adding the acid to the curdle. Uh, well, you know what? The thing you didn't tell me, Brooke, is like what were the results? 77 degrees what? Celsius? 77 Celsius? No, that's not a good one. So no, that is a real number. 77. No one would... 77.7777. Yeah, okay. But who would choose 77.77777? You said 172, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So they must have meant that. But you didn't tell me what the what the results were. So I don't know whether or not you enjoyed that 172. Uh, anyway, whatever. Moving on. But traditional stovetop methods seem to call for just a quick simmer before adding the acid to the curdle. While we're on the topic, what's better? Whole milk or milk with some heavy cream? Uh, and is there any difference in texture between lemon juice, distilled vinegar, and white wine vinegar? Or is that just a taste preference? Many thanks and congrats on the nomination. Uh, best Brooke from Tribeca. Yeah, the nomination for the beard. And one, one in ICP. Jane Grigson Award. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. Should I get another bottle of Prosecco? <laughs> uh, no, I think we're I think we're all, we're all right. Okay, but we, but uh, yeah, I didn't even know I was up for award, and uh, you didn't even go. You weren't even invited to the event. I was not even. Yeah, it's not that I didn't go, Stas. I know. Not invited. Yeah. Not invited. You know why? No. It's the equivalent of like the carnation thing. Like I wasn't up for any of the things that had been nominated, right? But but like the judges have like special judge awards. They're like meh. Maybe they should have won something. I'll give it to them. You know what I mean? Let's not invite them. Let's not invite them, though. We won't invite them. <laughs> Last month, you weren't even nominated. Now you're a winner. I know. Now, but then, this. I've, well, that's what I'm saying. I've, I've won. I've won something. So now my, you know, my losing streak is over. That means I have no more. My hair has been but cut. it's not like you like really Samson. won because it wasn't a category. But no, actually. against anyone. Uh, excuse me, though. Were you up against anyone? It's an award. Come on. And not only is it's it an award. Not only is it an award. But like it's pretty badass. Jane Grigson was a she's a was well known. I believe she's British writer. She died, I think, in the nineties or something like this. And uh, you know, I guess her most famous book here in the states was uh, Charcuterie. And anyway, she is a fanta- was a, a fantastic writer, right? And so this um, and very influential, in fact. And this uh, this award, the Jane Grigson Award, is for you know heavily kind of researched and thought out and like deep deep dives, basically. And I love deep dives, and I you know I love her writing, you know, and ha- have for decades. So you know, super dupe honor to get the Jane Grigson Award, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so Stas just wants to do anything to make me feel like it wasn't. A, it's a it's a great award from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And do I you get a them. thing on your book? Do I get a thing on my book? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether I, I'm not. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not at liberty to say whether I get a sticker on my book or not. Do you know why they put stickers on books? So they sell more. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, but I don't know whether they work in Amazon. 
Like it used to be, you would go to a you would go to a bookstore and you'd see it, and you'd see a sticker, mm-hmm. and you'd be like. Do I want to know what this idiot has to say or this idiot? Well, mm-hmm. some other idiot gave this idiot an award, so they must know what's up. I feel up. like when the stickers were on the books of, like, the books in elementary school, it's the ones you wanted to avoid because they were the long, laborious. The tough reads, yeah. yeah. Tough reads. What, like Caldecott's and those kind of <laughs> yeah, awards? Yeah, you'd be like, oof. I'll tell you what, though. For a, for a children's book author especially, like, unless you win some of those big awards, I think it's hard to do numbers because there's just so many kids' books out there. That, you know, you need some sort of – because parents, when they're buying kids' books, right, there's the big – well, am I buying something that's going to be good for my child's brain? I'll get the one with the with the freaking yeah. award, mm-hmm. you know, on it. And I think the same goes for cookbooks. You know, the cookbook has the sticker on it. No, yeah, for sure. You know, the assumption is that there's some useful information in there that's going to help. Because, you know, cooking a recipe out of a book is kind of a – it's kind of a – for people who don't cook necessarily every day, it's kind of a big whoop. You know what I mean? Like they go through the big – rigmarole of getting the ingredients and all this other stuff. It's kind of a big... You remember back when you used to be like that? Mm-hmm. I remember that. You, might, you know my first cookbook that I cooked out of that I owned that was given to me? Uh, man, the title of it. The Julia Childs, uh, not her first one, but the... What's it called? The Way to Cook? Yeah, I used to make so many recipes out of that damn thing. In fact, I still make some of those recipes out of that thing. Anyways, uh, what were we talking about, though? Ricotta, Ricotta. cheese. Mm-hmm. How the hell did we get on this stuff? I don't know. How the hell does this happen? <laughs> So I'm not. Uh, oh, she's. She, uh, thank. It was a congratulations on the award. That's why. Okay, uh, on the nomination. So I have not made a boat ton of uh, acid curdled cheeses, be it you know ricotta or uh, paneer or you know like a fresco or, or things like this. But I'm going to go. I'm going to go ahead and say that um, you know Kenji at at Serious Eats a long time ago did a, a bunch of uh, tests on ricotta, and for him. He didn't see a kind of a huge difference in uh, the in the texture of the ricotta based on the temperature to which it's heated. So he didn't see uh, he didn't see it as being a, a big deal. And in fact, to prevent scorching, he even uh, nuked you know nuked the stuff and just made sure that it was in the temperature regime uh, that he wanted before he uh, added um, the acid to it. I'm interested in the one that you have where the acid is pre-added and then raised to, to curdle it to see what that is. But my feeling is is that while it's true, perhaps, that, that he didn't get that much of a difference in texture with the different temperatures, it's a known fact that, um, that the rate of curdling is going to be different at different temperatures. And also, holding a curd at an elevated temperature in a liquid for a length of time will continue to exclude water from it, making a kind of denser, harder curd. So my guess is that, that over very short periods of time, the temperature might not be that big of a uh, deal, but that over longer periods of time, the uh, temperature will become uh, more and more of a big deal. The other thing that's interesting, and I want, I'd like to find if you could send me uh, you know, or tweet me out like a link to the recipe that you followed uh, in the circulator uh, for it. One of the things that is really clear with any sort of gelling mechanism is that the final texture of the gel is very dependent on the conditions present at the time of gelling. So, um, for instance, with alginates, if you use a soft calcium, right, not only does it take longer to set, but the gel will be less firm because the actual uh, agglomeration of uh, the alginate to it to itself, the, the binding of the, the alginate to itself, uh, 
not only is it slower, but it produces a different texture. Uh, but that also aging, it can increase the texture, but it's never, you know, it increase, make it harder, but it's never going to uh, be the same in a slow set situation versus a fast set. So the amount of acid you add, the speed at which it curdles, and the temperature at which it curdles, it seems to me are variables that you could probably uh, dork with and get um, get different results. The same goes true for acid, the acid that you use. Um, and again, I haven't done extensive testing, but you know, according to you know what what I've read, uh, you know, lemon juice is going to taste like lemons. Buttermilk takes substantially more, so it's probably going to affect the texture, and it's also going to affect the um, it's going to affect the texture. It's also going to um, affect the flavor at those at those kinds of, of levels. Um, but remember also is that different things with different acids, depending on the rate at which you add them, are going to affect the rate of curdling as well. So the rate at which you add it is probably also going to have an effect. Similarly, the draining time is going to – they all basically – they all have effects. In terms of whole milk versus whole milk and cream, obviously the more cream you have, the more fat you're going to have. So the, the, the more creamy it's going to taste, right? Um, the other things you might futz with is uh, you might want to add some extra calcium to the mix in the form of like calcium chloride if you want a harder curve. I don't know what you're trying to achieve. So please send me a link to the recipe that you did because I'd love to actually try it out because I'm going to do a bunch of side-by-sides, especially because you know now that I have a tandoor that I'm going to go paneer crazy. Do you like yeah. paneer? Mm-hmm. You do? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, what the hell? Stas and I are going to be doing a <laughs> paneer for days, and that is the cooking issues. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.